0: Welcome once again to the Coffin Heroes podcast. We're bringing you a very special episode today. Uh, It is your host, as always, Alan, Mr. DC. I'm delighted to be joined by Mr. Marvel. Hi there, it's Keith here. Also, Mr. Indy.
1: Hello, it's Rodney here.
0: And we thought it was time to mark our 100th episode with something very special. So hit the music.
2: Wasn't that awesome?
0: <laughs> that was awesome. That was uh, work of a local boy, a friend of yours, Keith, I believe.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Whenever, whenever we we realised we were coming up to our uh, our hundredth episode, I uh, I reached out to uh, to uh, a, a a Cork-born Belfast-based musician and fellow podcaster uh, by the name of uh, Nathan O'Regan. Uh, Nathan uh, is co-host for a podcast called Mad Notions Podcast, which I. Highly recommend you follow if you like a little bit of music and a little bit of comedy, and the odd rant. Uh, But uh, you know, Nathan Nathan is a musician in his own right, a composer in his own right. Uh, You can find him on uh, on social media under his own name, Nathan O'Regan. And he was kind enough to uh, to compose and produce our brand new Coffee and Heroes theme tune. Oh yes,
1: yeah, unbelievable! I absolutely adore it. When we were we were sort of spitballing ideas, and we, I think Keith and I maybe took it over a little bit, and we're like, make it 80s make it turtles something like that <laughs> and he did he delivered it's absolutely fantastic great stuff uh, um yeah. i'd like to take a little bit of credit i believe i pushed some of the lyrics and then he oh
2: just made Take it credit for nathan's better. work
0: terrible terrible uh,
2: it's a, a very collaborative <laughs> process he's a very very talented man and uh and uh, i think on behalf of of the Coffee and Heroes podcast, I'd like to offer him a very big, uh, a very big thank you. Whenever the the pubs reopen, we'll uh, we definitely own one on the Sunflower.
0: Or until then, there's a cup of coffee waiting for you, Coffee and Heroes. So <laughs> yeah, so we were hitting 100. Obviously, we've done review shows, we've done preview shows, we've done starting points. We you know had were lucky enough to chat to Chips Adarski recently. And that was a really great thing. That was wonderful talking to someone within the industry, creators we admire. So we reached out to a, a couple of different creators whose work we admire, whose work we talk about on the store, in the podcast. And they very graciously uh, got back to us and, and were up for it. So we decided, you know, as a, as DC or Marvel would do with any number 100, that there had to be variants. So we have <laughs> episode 100A and episode 100B. So... Time now for episode 100A. I hope you guys dig it. So your host is always Alan. I'm joined by Vicky, Keith and Roddy here. But I am delighted to be joined by the creators, uh, the writer and artist and co-creators of one of our absolute favorite titles in store. Uh, we we have, in, in Coffee and Heroes, we always have a set amount of titles that we recommend to anybody if they're new to comics, if they're long-time readers. We call them staples of the store. So, you know, Vicky's a big Saga fan. I'm a big Deadly Class fan. Anything Marvel, keeps happy with. Uh, Roddy is a creator himself. We always keep his stuff there. But one title that we all agree on, and it, it's got a great life in the store, is a series called Canto through IDW. It recently finished its first volume, uh, which was was brought together in an arc called If Only I Had a Heart. There was a recent uh, release of a one-shot called Canto and the Clockwork Fairies, and we're launching now uh, in the next couple of days, we're very excited about, which is Canto Two and the Hollow Men. So I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by the writer, David M. Boer, and the artist, Drew Zucker. How are you guys?
3: Doing great, so excited to be here. You know, we do a lot of podcasts, and to be able to be with Coffee and Heroes and you all is really exciting because you've just been such a huge support system for Kanto back when we were just the little clockwork knight who could. <laughs> and so it's it's a real thrill to be here.
4: Yeah, no, it, we we really appreciate it. you guys. You guys were kind of the proof to us that. Uh the book had legs beyond just our own local shops because we we have a hard time seeing the larger picture sometimes so to see that it was being accepted on a broader scale was exciting for us
0: awesome well i mean i suppose before we jump into any sort of questions the first thing i should say is congratulations to you david on becoming an uncle <sighs>
3: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. My um, social media posts come back to haunt me. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So, so yeah, my my niece was um, just born a few days ago, four days ago. It's actually my 13th niece or nephew. Wow. Uh, uh, really special because it's my twin brother's uh, first, identical twin brother, first uh, child. That's
4: wow. 13 for you?
3: Thirteen nieces and nephews. Do not ask me for, about birthdays. There's, this, there's a spreadsheet.
4: There's We're going to talk about this after, because I was under the impression it was just like you and your brother.
0: Yep. Well, see, I'm, I'm so glad you just said you had an identical twin brother, because I genuinely didn't know if that was you in the photo or not. I thought you had shaved.
3: I think it's funny because I post I posted that, and he's in one of the photos, and I definitely had the thought of, you know, some people are going to, if they don't read the text of the post, they're going to assume that I just had a baby. And I thought, <laughs> I you know, it's 2020, and that's like only the third worst thing to happen, so let's just go with it.
1: <laughs>
0: Um, so, yeah, cool. We'll, we'll jump into it, as I say, with a few different questions, bits and pieces. We obviously want to talk a little bit about Kanto, but maybe more on Canto 2 and, and certainly Clockwork Fairies as well. Uh, but I, I just thought it'd be good just to jump at, uh, to start at the beginning. So uh, for you, David, your comics journey began with, you know, working with Vault Comics and titles such as Alien, Bounty, Hunter and Powerless. For you, Drew, it was The House, which I believe was a Kickstarter project and Fubar. So, how did you guys come together to create the wonderful world of Canto, or as it has now been trademarked, I believe, the Canto Verse? Yes,
3: that was just that was so thrilling. Somebody had suggested the Canto Verse, and I loved it. Um, True. Why don't you give your uh, take on our um, great Uh, beginning of our relationship? And then I'll tell you what really happened. Yeah.
4: Uh, Okay. Perfect. So. Uh, I was working on The House at the time. I was finishing it up, and David had approached me about doing a short story. And at the time, I wasn't able to commit into doing anything else because we were in uh, full-fledged, just finish line mode with The House. When that wrapped up, I circled back to David with uh, a concept sketch and a paragraph of what would eventually become Canto. And I sent it to him, and I really have to stop doing it because I just blind send my best ideas to people I don't really know. Uh, I sent it, to and him. I
3: stole it so fast, <laughs> but I kept you on. But I kept you on, Drew. So he
4: did. Thank you. I I appreciate your generosity. Uh, <laughs> and almost immediately, he came back to me telling me he is this massive Wizard of Oz fan, which was always part of the, uh, the combination of what the story was meant to be and that he was on board, he wanted to do it. And then from there, we just developed the story. And, you know, I say within a year we had the entire first arc laid out. We had basic, uh, basic ideas of where the story would go post, uh, what would be volume one. And, uh, we had a finished pitch, And I think about a year later, IDW was on board with
3: it. Yeah. And from my perspective, I, you know, I loved Drew's work on the house, how I was familiar with him. And when that concept sketch came in uh, of Canto, his, his design really didn't change a whole lot. There were tweaks and things, but the design from the beginning was similar to what I think you all saw. And, you know, it sounds like, the same reaction that you all had and a lot of readers had when they first saw that that cover of issue one from last year of the first arc, and just this character, within about a half a second, I, I was already on board. I, I said to myself, I don't know who this character is, I don't know what the story is, but we're we're going to tell it. So um, that's, that's how it started. I just was so attracted to this character, this design, immediately, and... You know, I couldn't really put aside my, um, the ideas I had about its commercial potential as well as storytelling potential. Um, So that was a part of it too. I thought this would be very widely appealing to a lot of different types of people. And it was different from um, comics that were out there. I'm, I'm a little, I mean, I hate to say it, but I'm a little fatigued on a lot of Comics coming out because it just feels like the same, um, you know, gritty premise-based stories, and they just keep pumping them out. It's like let's let's create a a, a character that's going to stand the test of time. And I said this the other day, and I still believe this. I'd rather have I'd rather have somebody create a character that you can put in a hundred stories rather than create a story that you have to populate with a hundred characters. So that's how I, that's how we approach this story. That's how we approach this character. Um, like you said, it took about a year. I want to say actually, yeah, it was about a year because um, I think our one year anniversary was almost exactly the day that Canto number no. one, that first issue came out last June of 2019, which was kind of a cool thing. When you see your memories in the, you know, Facebook and Instagram, it's like, this happened in 2019 um so so yeah we just believed in the story so much that we started we hit the ground running and we decided everybody else better you know get on the kanto train because
1: we're driving it whether we have passengers (laughs) or not
4: (laughs) get on board or get out of the way
1: (laughs) cool um so i guess following on a little bit from that so you said it started with a sketch but um how does the creative process look now? Do you, is it very much collaboration or are you are you just writing a script and then following it along or do you find a lot of, do you do a lot of changes and as much, would you say a lot has changed from the first volume to the second volume? Has any, have you learned anything from creating that first volume? No,
3: <laughs> I'm just kidding, Roddy. Um yeah. Uh, when you we work very very closely together, Drew and I, we talk on a daily basis. We're exchanging ideas and um, roughs, uh, panel layouts, page layouts, pencils, inks. We're we're just sh- constantly sharing information. So the process essentially is: I sort of end up laying out the story, and we have an outline, and we talk about that. And what does Drew want to draw? What is Drew gonna enjoy drawing? What are some of the creatures in creature design that we haven't done yet? that would be really fun. Um, and I really listen to Drew for that because I'm gonna we're gonna get Drew's best work from uh, the things that he is excited about drawing. So we do that and then I usually script and I send it to Drew and we we tease each other, but I, I think we both agree that the scripts are very close to what ends up happening on the page. There is some adjustment, some panel adjustments, sometimes I ask too much of him, sometimes I don't ask enough," um, which is an interesting you know process. And but ultimately, we bring our separate visions for the story, which are always fairly aligned. but we bring them together, and that's what sort of creates the product that I think is a little bit better than even the two parts that go into it.
2: So you yeah, you talked a wee bit about uh, about Drew especially that you know you, that you sent over that that design for for Kanto, the character I mean the, the visual of of Kanto is really really unique. Um, that that idea of this this little knight, um, you know, and you've you've mentioned the the Wizard of Oz, you know, obviously. So there's the the Tin Man influence right in there, but I mean where where did that Where did that come from? is there is there like a a rough sketch somewhere on a on a cocktail cocktail napkin that you know as there you know as when where did you know it was finished? You know where did it come from and 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 how did it go?
4: it It came directly out of Wizard of Oz. and the the house was so reference heavy for me and so labor intensive drawing you know, soldiers with period accurate equipment for 160 something pages that I reached this point that I was like, I I don't want to, I want to do a book that challenges me, but I want to just draw stuff like out of my head. I'm the irony of it being that Canto requires more reference than anything I've ever done because I sit there and go, Oh, I just have to draw trees. And then I go, I I don't actually know what trees look like out of my head. (laughs) Um, but it, it was born out of this, this idea of, let me see if I can do something that I've never done, that I'm not comfortable with. And it was basically to design something cute, something that would be, that would have marketability. You know, I, the things I love to draw generally aren't what I would consider mass marketable, but That was really where that challenge was born out of was, let me see if I can do something different and something that, you know, could fall into the all ages category.
3: And I think it's so interesting and ironic, Drew, that you say um, you don't you don't necessarily do mass market. You don't draw mass. You know what I mean? Because I looked at that and I thought this is just gonna hit it out of the park, and I knew from the very first moment that I saw that I was like there's so much hope in this character, both for success for us as well as, you know, in this story. And so uh, I, I I think it's funny that you um, s- say that you, you almost feel like you're kind of a niche design, and niche uh, you know storyteller, and. You know, I'm glad we got together because I had, you know, I have this, I still have this grand vision of where Kanto is going to be in five years. So
4: the, the irony is that Kanto kind of changed all that, that Kanto, it it showed me that I could take all of the things that I had learned doing horror, which I, I love. I, I adore horror as a genre. I think it gets the short end of the stick from Hollywood and the, the historical end of film and everything. But it, Canto showed me that all of those tropes and all the things I had learned doing playing in that genre could be translated into this all-age, kind of mass marketable idea. And, and that's what was a lot of fun about it.
5: So um, what attracted you to um, an all-ages book? Are they the kind of stories that you enjoy the most, or did you spot gap in the, uh, spot a gap in the market that you wanted to fill? All the things, Vicky. All the things. <laughs> all, all of
4: them. We're, we're, we're just living our best life in a <laughs> style vault.
3: Uh, we definitely saw a gap in the all ages direct in the direct comic market for all ages comics. I just had this discussion on Twitter about what all ages means and everybody cites these examples of original graphic novels that they say are all ages and it's their kids books Mm -hmm. these are not the graphic novels that parents are sitting down and reading with their children and that's what we wanted to create was something that a story that appealed to all audiences um, there's there's a minimum that you have to have to ensure that you, you don't exclude kids from the audience. So no swearing, no sex, no, you know, violence, uh, graphic violence, none of those things. But then once you get there, how do you put enough layers in the story that kids get one thing out of it, parents get another? And then as Drew likes to say, kids will get another thing out of that if they read it at 10 years old versus 20 years old. So that's, to us is all ages where it can really have enough layers to appeal to everybody who ends up picking up the story.
4: Yeah, I, I, I think David and I define all ages differently from a lot of people, at least within the comic industry. I think Star Wars is an all ages sort of thing. Lord of the Rings is all ages. They, they have in undeniably dark moments, but I mean, I discovered Star Wars when I was four. I, I have very distinct memories of sitting in front of the TV with the VHS and, and watching that. It, it's just kind of the reality of of what all ages is to the comic industry and what all ages actually is. And I think that's where we've found real success for Canto.
3: And my hope is that, you know, Canto being successful is, you know, wonderful for A lot of different reasons but one of my hopes is that we start start seeing more stories that are all ages in the direct comic market with floppies so they get 10 12 year old kids coming into comic shops and picking up something that's not the big two and also we start shifting away from just the same type of story that is told over and over again that's again i just stepped right up on my soapbox one more time um (laughs) just to see some variety in comics because that's what's going to save it is variety rather than more gritty sci-fi gritty fantasy adult type comics that's my belief and I think others will disagree with me and um I'm willing to perish on the top of this hill so there we are
5: (laughs) no I I think it's good because um we've obviously, obviously our store has been growing we've been trying to sort of set new areas and we've actually now got a kids section so if um parents do come in with their younger children we do always recommend them to them but like alan says we always run out of canto because not only does alan obviously push it i push it quite a lot and during lockdown um we sent an a copy to both my nephews over in england um and we got a couple of great videos of of them absolutely loving it i'm i'm hoping my sisters are reading it to them um but they're both already three so i'm hoping it's something that they live with and they grow up with it as much as i love it as well
3: so i have a fun first of all that's absolutely spectacular spectacular um and i have a fun little anecdote about that uh we have friends who pre-covid um I was able to sit down with their six-year-old daughter and she has read she she her parents read the the issues to her as they came out. And I think this was like issue five or something. We I was over there and she got she got a copy and she wanted me to read it to her. And I, I mean, kids are tough audiences, and then asking for some a writer to read their own work out loud is like you know, really a challenge. <laughs> But I did it. And you know what? At the end I asked her, so what so what happened? And you know, all these things happened in the issue. And then she said, Oh, can't do et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was exactly the one thing that you need to know you needed to know in that issue to move to the next issue. Yeah. So I think that's why it um, you know, why we, we talk about all ages in that way. She didn't take 70 percent of what was in that comic but she took what she needed to and she enjoyed that part of it and that's you know and i think that's a success
4: the the one other thing i'll i'll throw in there is that for for you guys as a shop this book my my original plan was that i i wanted the book before david was even involved my goal for the book was to create a book that the shops could move that would that would not sit on their shelves and just become stopped. And that is the long-term goal that I, I've set out, at least with this and hopefully with the rest of my career, that I want you guys to be successful. This industry dies if it just does the same thing over and over and over again. And if everybody is just doing, well, I want to do my version of Saga. I want to do my version of... Of why the last man, whatever it is, it does no one any favors going forward. And ultimately, this industry needs new readership, and that's part of what Kanto was designed for—was to bring in, to help bring in that next generation into shops and hopefully create, you know, five, ten-year customers for you guys.
0: Yeah, you want to snag them while they're young.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I'm basically <laughs> a drug. <dealer. laughs>
3: But, I mean, we don't like to say indoctrination, Alan, but here we are. But here we
0: are. But it's, it is it is a very good point, Vicky Makes. I mean, we, we set up a younger reader section because if parents are not into this stuff and their kids come into a comic store, they'll look about. And, you know, you if if a 13-year-old walks in and says, I want to get into comics, can show them a thousand things. If you get a six or seven year old come in, you really do struggle a little bit. And I think even the big tour starting to see this, you know, Marvel of Launch, Marvel Action, DC are doing DC kids, and then you get great all ages titles, you know, produced by independents, you know, like yourselves. And what's great about Kanto is that we can put it in the children's section, but we, we'll also put it in our starting point section for indie comics we'll put it in our podcast recommendation section. So it's just a very, very versatile book from that uh, point of view. But um, we'll not talk too much about the first canto just simply because, you know, I I know you guys have talked a lot about it and we've loads of interesting stuff to jump into with the second one. But I just want to finish on one thing on the first canto. You know, I don't need to talk about a lot here because anybody who comes into the store or listens to our podcast will know we talk about it all the time. But I would ask for you guys... (laughs) If you had to pitch it to someone who had never read comics before in fifteen seconds, what would you say? Now I'll let you off the hook a little bit and tell you mine first, simply because we're pitching it pretty well because we're sold out of it all the time. You know, Ficky's. I'm
3: very, I'm very interested to hear what your pitch is because you know, you know, I have, you know, I have a buttoned-up pitch for this. So I, let's do
0: it. I have been working on this for months <laughs> uh vicky's is just just buy it that's awesome um so what i always pitch it as is an all ages title that is a cross between bone and lord of the rings it's a new and amazing take on the well-worn story about the small hero with the big heart who always tries to do the right thing
3: i mean i i 100 cannot improve on that yes.
0: <laughs> and here's the end of the podcast <laughs>
3: just drop the mic no, that's wonderful. I I really dive into the um, the details of it, the story of it. But Alan, what you've just said is so um, it's so terrific because it doesn't it doesn't bog the the listener down with detail. You can show them the cover and say, look at how cute this little guy is. And if you like Lord of the Rings, that works too. You know what I mean? but you, And you can say your pitch and everybody kind of gets what kind of story it's going to be. And so th- that's amazing. I think um if every shop did that, we would have um sales into the six figures, I think. <laughs> so thank you.
5: Well, I, I just let you go. I don't read a lot. This is one of my favorite too. So just buy it. And pretty much anyone does. So because you're up there with Saga for me, so um, they're my favourite too. Um, my next question, um, so Kanto 2, but obviously before that was Kanto and the Clockwork Fairies. Why did you feel to have the importance of to release a one-shot between one and two? Was it to attract new readers, or was it to have a short story to plug that gap?
3: True.
4: <laughs> I, I actually think us doing the one-shot, we were both pretty nervous about doing that. It was more of a risk than anything else. And originally the plan was before the world ended, uh, was that clockwork fairies was going to come out about two months ahead of, uh, of Volume of the hollow men. The idea was to give me a little bit more time to work because the uh, production schedule became very aggressive initially. So that was the original plan. That plan has obviously changed significantly in the last couple of months. But it was also, I, I think we both felt like we could tell the story that we wanted to tell with volume two in less issues, in, in that five would, would do it. And that's not a cutting of content. It, it's quite the opposite, actually. I think volume two is denser in content than volume one was but it was more in service of the story and what we felt like would would help that story the best and also help flesh out Canto's world with Clockwork Fairies.
3: Yeah, from my perspective, <clears throat> we call it a side quest. And <laughs> I wanted to show, again, it's character-based stories versus premise-based comics. And while Canto has a very strong storyline that you see continue from the first volume to the second volume, Clockwork Fairies was our opportunity to say, hey, by the way, you remember how much you liked this character from volume one? Well, guess what? We can put him in pretty much any scenario, any story, and, you know, have you enjoy it, have you enjoy what he does when he's faced with any sort of adversity. So it's our, it was our chance to tell a side story to say the world is big, it's interesting there's a lot of interesting friends and foes in it Um, and then from a from a um, market perspective it did fill a gap between one and two but what i think you're seeing right now which was not intended i think it's just a happy byproduct of our schedule is i don't think i mean maybe i'm wrong but i don't think the response that we have gotten from canto Two pre-release would be necessarily necessarily at the level it is without the one shot reminding current readers. Oh, remember how much you loved the first volume and bringing some new readers in because what I think happened with the one shot, I, you know, we read reviews, we follow all this stuff and it was well reviewed and people enjoyed this little 22 page story. And I think it showed the readers in the market, Canto one, hopefully, I mean, I say this and I don't know, and this is just me sort of spouting off, but I hope they looked at the one shot as wow, Canto is not a fluke. It's actually a character that could could have some legs and could stay around. And now my hope is to build on that with Canto two number one, getting, you know, good, strong responses from readers. And then it becomes the snowball effect of holy smokes, these guys aren't just you know a one and done team this isn't a one and done character we've got this momentum that I think every step of the way whether we've planned to or not it's kind of slowly picking up that momentum to keep going
1: yeah well to be honest it deserves it because it should be like a hundred issues in my opinion but when you felt oh
3: idwpublishing.com <laughs> <Yeah. dot>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of idw was it i assume it was your idea to bring the one shot to them and sort of pitch it as that and but did you did you pitch it with the idea of the side quest obviously did you pitch it with the the thought of this will gain more readership or was it really just for did you think it was for the old fans or did you think, okay, this is a great, like we always talk about on the podcast about like a great jumping on point. Did you feel it would be that?
4: Uh, I genuinely remember our conversation with IDW about this.
3: I don't either. I think everybody was so back on their heels. We had this conversation probably in, um, I want to say it was at New York Comic Con in October, about moving forward. Um,
4: we we and- had spoken about it in San Diego. We got thumbs up for it oh, that's then, right and then in new york i think we finalized clockwork fairies i
3: i'll, I'll let you peek behind the curtain for a little wizard of oz reference <laughs> that i use all the time but yeah i think we talked about it in san diego and you gotta writers artists creators out there just be aware of your surroundings and what's happening because We had a signing at San Diego that, um, you know, we got there. It was an hour-long signing. There was a line that was, this is, mind you, this was July of 2019, and there was only one issue out. I think the second issue had just dropped during San Diego Comic-Con week. And we had a line of people just, like, waiting to get signed. And we were right next to some really heavy hitters on, on the other side, and it was, you know, we were on par. And, of course, me being... Me, I'm like, hey, David Marriott, our editor, can we talk about Kento, <laughs> too?
2: <laughs>
3: Everybody was so on their heels at that moment that I, I, I think it was a lot of, yeah, you guys have a vision for it. You know, we're here for it. So I think that's a lot of how it came about.
4: Fun side note: That meeting about Canto Two was actually had in a corner of a stairwell at San Diego Comic Con. <laughs> That's where it was a perfect.
3: I wish I had Alan. I wish I had you there to pitch the idea.
0: Always all available. Always available. Um, but no, I just wanted to throw a quick note on just what you were saying about always wanting to have, you know, books that you can move, so to speak. The the one shot to me was perfect because. If you hadn't read Kanto, you could still read Clockwork Fairies, and we would sometimes maybe have parents come in, they they don't maybe want to spend the equivalent of $20 on a graphic, but if you show them a $4 single issue and go, look, this is like a little taster into this world, see if the kids like it. So we, what we saw after the release of Clockwork Fairies was it wasn't just more people jumping on Kanto too. it was more people going, that was great, There's there's a book set before this. So it actually from a even just from a business point of view, I thought it was exceptionally clever because it allowed us to recommend things to a parent where they're not having to you know maybe spend more than they thought they would have to so uh, I just wanted to say, from a business point of view, I thought the one shot was was brilliantly brilliantly executed
3: a hundred percent that was our plan a hundred percent Alan <laughs> <laughs> it's
4: actually great for us to hear because we only are able to see this kind of stuff in very in very specific terms. We can only see it in terms of what order numbers are. We can see it in terms of sellout. We can see it in terms of reviews. We can't see it in those terms unless the shops let us know personally, which is why we, we it's important for us to have these relationships with you guys and with a number of other stores because that kind of thing is the type of anecdote that would go completely over the head of everybody, without having heard that story, and it's definitely something that we'll probably internalize at some point, and decide going forward how we how we approach scheduling and how we want to handle things.
2: I keep hearing this uh, this this term side quest, and as a as a D and D player, that gets me excited. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know if you guys are, are are that way inclined, but it certainly feels like it.
4: That, that's all David's idea. <laughs> <laughs> From
3: him. I'm not a <clears throat> I I will not be ashamed to say that I've actually never played uh D and D ever. Uh and I'm I would be excited to do something like that. But for me it's more about um, you know, those huge open open world video games, you know? You gotta go on you. your little side quest you. and
2: um the just, just with uh with 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 Clockwork Fairies and with with the original uh, the original first volume, there there seems to be I don't know uh, an aspect of like body modification the you know the hearts and the clocks the uh, the fairies having their wings removed and replaced with with you know bionic wings or clockwork wings the 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 witch herself in the in, in Clockwork Fairies with her. Her whole bottom half was like cybernetic. You know, what's going on there?
4: Uh, So here's some uh, behind the scenes stuff for you. In the uh, actual script, she is in the description referred to as a Baba Yaga, which turns out is not as much fun as John Wick makes it out to be. It it is a super strange Russian folktale about a witch who has a house that has chicken legs so okay uh but with that uh the witch is actually designed around that concept so that's where you see the leg design is actually mechanical like sort of chicken legs uh and the you'll notice she has a bunch of pails on her back because a baba yaga actually flies around in a wooden bucket with a uh with like a spoon or a stick or something. So that's where all the pails come from. That sort of body modification stuff, though, plays into what we set up with uh, the tens, with the removal of the hearts. And also, I personally felt like by the time we got to the end of Volume 1, we had lost a little bit of the steampunk element, and not by anyone's fault other than my own with design. Uh, so I, I had this sort of desire to go back to let me see if I can do some of that steampunk biomechanical sort of stuff into the character design. And I think it just really played well into the story.
3: And I have two... I, I could say two things about that. One is Kanto, the first story arc, by the time he he, he sets out very specifically to make his beloved hole in order to save her and spoiler alert if anybody would like to mute it um at, by the end he doesn't find what he's looking for but somehow they're still fulfilled anyway he's reached a goal that he may or may not even have known that he had and that's them not being still not being whole uh you know, physically, but achieving something, and I, I think that's that's a theme that came out. We didn't necessarily touch on it or or hit on it and really discuss it before issue one of last year. But it's something that really came to the fore when we were hearing from um, readers and fans, uh, and there were there were several readers I don't want to give too many details but there were several readers who reached out to us that were um, dealing with their own uh, physical limitations Mm
4: -hmm.
3: and something that was super inspiring they said from Canto was the um, idea that you're you're more than just those limitations that you can go out and you can be you know fulfill your destiny what you're meant to be even if you're not whole quote unquote whole in that way and so i think maybe that's a little subconscious coming out with these modifications in clockwork fairies but there was a very specific um storytelling device as to why we had the um the the fairies have their wings removed and replaced with clockworks because when Kanto faces them he has that line he says we're the same i understand and so I, we i need i need to help i need to you know, be the one to, I can identify with where, where you are. And that's yet another reason beyond just being who yeah. he is. Kanto is Kanto, so he's going to save them. But it's a little more heartfelt when you know that they're suffering the way he is suffering, or not his whole, quote unquote, whole. Um, and so there was that identification that we really specifically put in. Now, the witch, I'm going to leave the witch, Aside for right
1: now. Interesting. Right. Um, So I guess you're talking about the journey there. So if Canto, the first volume is very much the solo hero story, you know, if we're talking Joseph Campbell, like hero's journey or whatever. um, Well, maybe not a solo journey. He does have an accompanying Malarex, of course. But is it fair to look at Canto 2 and The Hollow Men as a team-up book, like with Canto and friends? Like, What what would you say are some of your influences for the book? This is my favorite thing to say. Um,
3: I should say at this
0: of- point, apologies. Spoiler alert for Canto 2 and The Hollow Men, issue one.
3: Dun, dun, dun. Um, this is not even really a spoiler, but uh, I like to describe the four of them as... Um, uh, Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin, mixed with uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So those were our two inspirations for Canto, Falco, Richta, and Verada, his his three besties as they go out on their adventure.
4: There are numerous uh, messages from me to Philip Seavey, who is uh, our uh, a good friend of both of ours and great artist and writer in his own right of me basically screaming about david that he turned what was my single character into a team book and is creating about <laughs> eight thousand hours extra work as a result of it
3: go ahead Roddy.
1: no i was gonna say think of all that marketing you know the different oh, colors yeah. you know
3: i mean why why settle for one canto funko pop when you have, can have a four pack? Exactly. Um, I mean, for me, story-wise, it was a natural evolution for the story. If Kanto is going to have a new adventure, to um, give him, uh, you know, these these uh, comrades, these uh, friends, that is now his support network, and I, I think you're going to be surprised at where we end up taking the Hollow Men, because it's not, it's wow. it's not sort of the what you expect just a typical teen book is going to be it's i think a much more mm-hmm. i don't i don't know how to say it necessarily without i don't want to spoil too much but it's a much more um, grounded and realistic approach to how canto in particular in his character and who he is and how he cares so much about the the people around him and the people who are close to him and how he would make choices in this world and in this adventure that um, don't necessarily reflect upon um, just like the pure team dynamic. So uh, I think your expectations hopefully will be um, met and exceeded in a way, in a sort of a surprising way about where the story goes.
2: Yeah. Exciting. Uh, I mean, it must be, it must be, Tricky enough, Drew, because even in the in the first volume, you know, certainly in the in the first issue, the first volume, you have Canto, you know, and uh, you know all of the the ten men under the Slavers, and it could have been difficult to early on differentiate who was who. And I thought it was an inspired moment. Uh, the in that in that first couple of pages, the Slaver whips Canto and takes a takes a dent out of his out of his helmet. Uh, and for the rest of the for the rest of the book, until I got, to, I was like, I'm, I was always looking for the dent. I was always looking for the dent in his helmet. You know, when it was, that's Canto. <laughs> that,
3: that, we did a funny backstory. We were going to give him just a tattoo and have that whole scene, but we're like, nah, let's give it dent. <laughs> that, that
5: that was you know
4: that that was our big thing from the get go was how was to include details that allowed you to differentiate Kanto from everyone else, and then. Going into volume two, the main it allowed us more time to kind of develop what was I, I call a tin society where you have a larger character like Falco, who's obviously the muscle of the group, you have these taller, skinnier ones that they all kind of fulfill a role and they all look the same, but they're but none of them are exactly the same.
3: One of the things we did see um it was very interesting to see because when you read reviews especially for the first issue there are some people you know we got we got the criticism from a few that said oh i can't really tell them apart and then you would see other reviewers say well yeah because they're all slaves and they're not supposed to have identities yeah and it's like it was fun to watch that that debate among people who are reading right uh now that the tins are free in the hollow men, you see them starting to slowly embrace that freedom and individuality. And that's where you get their different details from and their different little weapons and colors and those sorts of things.
0: Well, one of the things that I, I thoroughly enjoyed about the first issue, certainly of Kanto 2, was obviously we're talking about how it's a bit of a team-up book. But I like that there's dissension within the ranks straight away. I like that there are people almost challenging Kanto's leadership skills. There are, there's you know it's the whole heavy as the head that wears the crown. You know there's always someone else who thinks they can do a job better. And I thought it was a really inspired choice to have like that little playful scene of, you know let's have a race and just to try and you know better Kanto so to speak um, before the adventure even begins. But. But there's a real depth to character there that i think you know one of the things we talk about a lot in our podcast and certainly a lot in the store in comics is efficiency of storytelling you know a comic is at its base level anywhere between 20 pages and 32 and you've got to communicate a lot of stuff in there and one thing you know i have to massively compliment you guys in the first issue of canto 2 it covers a lot of ground a lot of ground there's so much going on in it you know you've stuff with the shrouded man in there you've establishment of all these new characters you you know it's it, it's a brilliant brilliant first issue and again i'll continue to stroke the ego a little bit here but uh yeah just really really wonderful work just to kick things off i mean i first of all can't thank you enough know, for sending it to us um i have to admit uh vicky was exceptionally happy to get this sent but at the same time she said i don't know i kind of want to you know experience this for the first time on paper um
3: and what happened did oh, you read it
0: oh of course
5: oh, no, it's just obviously I was driving at the time when Alan got the email and like he said in the email, I just like, it'd been a busy day in the store and obviously driving home you're just, and then all of a sudden I got the email and I was just like, happy days. This is, this is something <laughs> to keep me going. And then like, like Alan uh, said, I, I was torn and I was reading my comics last night and then it was like, do you want to read it? I was like, he showed me on his iPad and I was like, yeah, go on then i've got to do it
3: i love that and alan i'm really glad to hear you say um, you know that the storytelling uh clicked with you in that first issue because we went through a lot of drafts on that script to really pare down what we need the the story we needed and wanted to tell and so I mean, I, I read it now, even you know months and months and months after we had um, you know buttoned it up and finished the production on it. and i am I'm still thrilled with what we ended up doing. So uh, it just makes me really happy to hear that it it connected, you connected with it um, in a similar way that you and I have connected with
0: it. I mean, certainly jumping as well on that digital against print media form I mean, I'm always curious to know what creators think I mean, one thing I will say about Canto too as well is I think the artwork is genuinely a, like the first book is gorgeous anyway, but I think the second book is really a step up, and there was a part where I was flicking through, and it's this beautiful double page spread in New Yorka and there was a part of me slightly regretful that I didn't appreciate that for the first time in a du- beautiful double page spread because uh-huh. I even, you know, I, I have the iPad here. So not that anybody in this, you know, audio medium can, you know, see what I'm doing. But I even turned the iPad sideways thinking, oh, well, maybe it'll reach out. No, no joy. I mean, what's what's your take on it as, you know, as creators? I mean, do you have a preference one over the other as you know, because one thing Vicky certainly uh, pointed out as well, you know, with reading it on the iPad was, you know, it's not dependent on your light source, you know, the colors really pop, so I'm sure that's satisfying, but at the same time, there's that joy of the print media, I mean, what's your sort of take on the digital versus print?
3: I only read print, really.
0: And you sent me this? Where where was my print copy? Where was my print copy? (laughs)
3: as soon as we get our comps in my friend as soon as we get our comps i i read physical copies because a lot of the stuff that i read is um graphic novels i read some individual issues but a lot of graphic novels so i like to have those and have them on my shelf
4: i personally go back and forth uh most of my reading is done digitally i live in a tiny apartment i can't have Eighty long boxes in here. My wife would probably kill me. I already take up too much room as is. Uh, I, I, my my take on it is, I I love print media, and there are there it is a totally different reading experience reading a book in print compared to reading it digitally. Uh, unless you, you know, there there is something to be said for the feel of it. But like as far as the industry goes, I'm a big believer that. You know, you kind of have to serve two masters. Always, always draw and do your storytelling based around a comic page. Basically, print media. Don't tailor it to digital. Digital is serving a totally different uh, retail base than the shops are serving. There, it, it, this has been proven over years and years and years of data to back it up that they're not cannibalizing one another. So for me, I think that you, if you want to read it physically, there's something to be gained from that, but I don't think you necessarily lose anything reading it digitally.
3: I'll just add, Alan, that the copy that I sent you to is a preview copy. And I think if you download it from Comixology, everything that's intended to be a double page spread ends up appearing on your screen as a double page spread. So, everybody out there go to coffee and heroes and buy your physical copy, but keep it in the mylar. (laughs) So when you put it on eBay, it'll be nice and buy the digital copy. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Well, speaking, Alan brought up the colors there and said they really pop. So I just thought I'd jump in and say, um, how did you get, get in touch with Vittorio Astoni? Did that, was he somebody whose work you admired or greatly, or did it just sort of happen that he was there at the right time? Because certainly I was looking through number two, and it feels like an entire brand new color scheme, which brings like a new dynamic to Kanto 2 and The Hollow Men, which is something that really, like obviously each character has a different color scheme, but it feels like there's more, maybe more greens and blues going, coming through this one, you know? So how did that kind of come about?
4: I will say this about Vittorio. Colorists are sort of a dime a dozen. Good colorists are extraordinarily rare. And Vittorio falls into the good colorist category. (laughs) Um, I met Vittorio through Tim Daniels, who is the lead designer over at Vault. And we did a short story together. And when I got the colors back on it, it just totally blew my mind. So I knew I wanted to work with him. And it just so happened when it was time to do Canto, he was available and within a budget that we could afford. And we sent him the first couple of pages and he just knocked it out of the park from the get go. And it's, he's been an essential part of this ever since he, he, what's great about him is that he's an artist outside of being just a colorist. Um he he's very talented on his own art, but he's also he understands how to use color as a storytelling uh technique. And that's probably his greatest strength with us is that there is definitely another layer that gets added to everything that I'm doing once he gets a hold of pages. And then once physical letters are actually put into the issue. It just makes the whole thing come together in a way that it wouldn't come together without him.
3: And Roddy, the difference that you're seeing between canto one and canto two is reflective of our, our, our storytelling notes to uh, Vittorio because in canto one, we started out in, they were enslaved in canto two, they're free. So, you know, our, our, our notes were Brighter sky, show that this is a good new world for them. That is going to get complicated, and as we go forward, I hope the hopefully the colors will reflect the differences in what's happening in the story.
5: Cool. So I have to say, obviously, that Canto is obviously an absolutely gorgeous book as it is. Canto um, uh, two is obviously the, like. What he said the art and the writing has sort of stepped up a bit and it's gorgeous from start to finish. I think I believe you remember seeing this. <gasps> uh, obviously people can't see this but I'm holding up my original page from um, Canto issue six. Um, it was one of my Christmas presents from Alan. and I have to say it was the last one I opened and I think I probably started crying because <laughs> it was one of the best presents I had got um obviously i'm gonna
4: start crying (laughs) it makes me so happy when those pages find good homes
5: i'm pretty sure i'm we're gonna probably have to buy another piece from the new book once it's all finished and and we see it but um as an artist do you feel yourself improving as like you go go on
4: the 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 amount of improvement that I've seen from volume one to volume two is is kind of mind-blowing for me when I go I've had to go back recently and really dig into volume one because I've had to reference certain things that were in there and I see the evolution of the way I'm drawing Canto from issue one into the back end of volume one and then into Volume 2. And there, there is definitely a comfort level that I've developed with the character that I think is reflected through Volume 2. And for me personally, Volume 2 is probably my the only time in my life I've looked at my art and gone, ah, you know what? This actually doesn't suck.
2: <laughs> me too,
4: Drew. Me too. I <laughs> you the best, as
5: always. <laughs>
2: So, uh, throughout throughout volume one of Canto, uh, I mean, there's a there's an element of like the dual narrative. There's the there's the story. There's the story that that is being told. You know, the story of the the the, the princess and the, the the boy that becomes the knight. Uh, and it's a great. I mean, it's a great. Uh, st- and then there's the, the story of of Canto. You know, the, the story that you're you're telling. And I mean, it's it's a. A, a, a storytelling tool that has used to great effect um, recently in uh, in pulp by Ed Brubaker and uh, Undone by Blood. I mentioned the two cowboy, looks me, yeah, you know, thieves. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, and notice, I notice at the start of uh, of Canto Two, there's a there's a bit of a bit of a bit of storytelling going on, but but Canto is now the hero of the story that has been told. Is that? I mean, uh, was that a, a deliberate choice in, on your part to, to shift that to, to, you know, keep using that tool and and to shift it to Canto being the hero rather than the prince, who, who we know wasn't all he was cracked up to be.
3: Yes, we talked about Drew and I talked about this, <clears throat> and we felt that that storytelling device, the, the the fairy tale about the knight saving the princess, as it, it served the purpose of Canto 1. Um, we felt like if we continued that in Canto 2, it would uh, it would seem repetitive. So we talked about, uh, before we started Canto 2, we talked about that storytelling device, and it served the purpose for the first arc, which is to um, get Canto on his quest, give him hope, and then at the end of the day... Um, Canto one is about storytelling, and it's about the story we tell, stories we tell each other, how they change over time, um, and, and and what we choose to sort of believe and take from stories. And that aspect of Canto is going to continue on, and you're going to see that in Canto two. And hopefully, knock on wood, uh, we keep going with the story. You're going to see it's about storytelling, and it's about what stories mean to us, and how they mean different things as they pass down generations, um, how they change to serve the time and to, to, to be what we need them to be in any particular moment. And so that device did not serve us for Kanto too. And I think you, you sort of hit it, Keith, when you said Kanto uh, is the hero of the story. Kanto has now embraced that a bit and we'll see that going forward.
0: Well, just something I wanted to bring up. I mean, again, obviously being a comic store and loving the medium so much is that obviously stories are there to be told, but comics these days as well are exceptionally collectible. You know, as you you rightly stated, David, you know, read the digital, never take the comic out of the mylar, so to speak. Um, you know, which is an interesting sort of opposition because stories are meant to be there to breathe and so forth. You know, I do see a rather beautiful little rack of Kanto CGCs right there.
3: Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs>
0: How did those get there? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. what's, what's, what's your thoughts on it? I mean, we I, again, obviously, we, we've built a really good relationship with you guys. And, you know, we chat over social media and this kind of thing. And it's 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 always wonderful, you know, seeing it from both sides in the industry. But obviously recently we had that IDW exclusive cover drop and it wasn't something that, you know, I'm sure you guys had any control over whatsoever. And, you know, there was that beautiful exclusive cover. And, you know, just as fans, we we wanted a copy, but then it became a case of scalpers coming in and doing that. And it's, it's disappointing when it's not, you know, just to double back on myself slightly, you know, if it was a case of the money went to you guys, people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into it, it wouldn't be anything that would certainly you know, upset me as a collector uh, and therefore rewarding the creators. But when it's going to scalpers and so forth, and it's sort of the dark side of the, the industry, if you will, and, you know, it's... I mean, wh- what are your thoughts on it in terms of the medium? Obviously, comics as collectibles slash comics as stories, because it used to be the comics were a cheap form of entertainment. And now it's a case of people coming on release day, lifting five copies and slabbing them. And, you know, you know, I'm guilty of it myself. I have a few slabs, but I usually have the graphics of any slabs I have. Well, what are your guys' thoughts just on that part of the industry in general?
3: Oh, Alan, we have thoughts.
4: It's a complicated relationship with it.
0: Because it must be satisfying that you see your work going for that to a degree, but, it, you know, that someone it's, sees that as insanely collectible, but at the same time, it must rankle as well, I guess.
3: It's it's a um, bittersweet scenario. So I will just start by saying some of our most strident, strongest, and earliest supporters of Cantow are in the quote-unquote speculator market because there's not really a better way to... The, the collector market, I guess. Um, so I'll preface it by saying that. And, uh, it's bittersweet because that first release of that first issue last year, we, there were people going into shops and just buying every single canto off the shelf. And that means that if you buy 10 copies for one person, that's nine other people who may never read the actual story. Um, I don't worry nearly as much about having the slabs behind me on my shelf because I've obviously read the story a bunch of times, but, um, yeah, so you take away readership, but then on the other hand, there is no replacement for the, um, the chatter, the buzz that comes from a brand new comic book hitting the shelves and everybody wanting a copy, whether it's for, cause they're speculating on it or they want to read it. Nothing matches that. And so it's, you know, we're, we're happy about it. Do would we Would we wish people would limit themselves? I guess. Yes. But that's why second and third printings exist, and you know getting readers copies to actually read it. And I just want to say I'm so sad that you guys did not get that um, San Diego Comic Con cover because it's it's one of our absolute favorite covers.
4: Yeah, so we we have a really complicated relationship with this, and like David said, the two of the guys that were the biggest early early on supporters of us, that's the market that they play in. Now, they they play in that market, but they also very much promoted the book based on story. They were big fans of it outside of whatever secondary stuff they had going on. We it, It kind of just snowballed on us because of the damage to issue one and what the initial print run was. And how it, it just blew up the secondary market in a way that I don't think we saw coming or IDW could have ever predicted. Just call it a happy accident. But it, it is one of those things that for us, it is, it's simultaneously really exciting and really infuriating. We don't begrudge anybody that goes and does that. The secondary market exists. They're going to go in. It's going to be what it is. And, you know, this is what some people do. They they flip this stuff. But at the same time, it is a little aggravating for us because we want people that are fans to be able to get the things that not only that they want to get, but for new readers to be able to come in and not have any sort of barrier to trying to get the book. So. It, it's a it's a balancing act that we have to find with it. I mean, we definitely have mixed feelings.
3: I, I will say that we, we follow, um, at least I follow quite a few um, collectors on social media. And it, so many of them, I'm, I'm so gratified to, to, to see that so many of them um, picked up Canto, that number one issue, and even later issues, um, thinking just for its value. And th- so many of them have said, oh I'm not selling that there's no way I'm selling that <laughs> So I love that and also I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say it since we're on the topic It's a- astounding this week a canto number no. one the first print in 9.8 sold on eBay for a thousand dollars thousand dollars and I like to joke that mm-hmm. our cut of that was,
0: 32 cents
4: (laughs) so don't worry folks we are not getting rich off the secondary market either
0: yeah that's it I, i just find it interesting from a creator point of view because as you say it creates that buzz around a book which is priceless uh but at the same time you know it's i don't know for lack of a better term i suppose it's people getting rich off your hard work so to speak you know uh, but as you say, okay. that's that's why the you know second print markets there and the um yeah. the the trade paperback market and so on and so forth as well. But yeah, it's just it's a bit of a crazy one. I mean, we've had the recent, you know, we we are a small business, but we try our best to get copies into as many hands as possible. So you know, there's been a few titles recently that you know we've had to limit to one per customer. That um you know you worry you're maybe turning people away with that, but people seem to embrace it in our store, which is great um because we want to promote story above all other things so um but yeah i mean if if you're not worried about those you know cgc ones behind you there david i know a store that would love those to display them
3: yeah you guys want to spot me for shipping i'll Uh, send them right away Uh, (laughs)
0: sorry sorry our house not our store
4: (laughs) i actually that secondary market like that Canto would not be what it was without secondary market. Yeah. It's uh, secondary market played as much of a part in creating the buzz around this new IP that no one had heard of and by all accounts should have, you know, based on the odds of the industry failed. And secondary market in addition to readership is what really drove it. They really they they work symbiotically together. And me personally for you guys limiting stuff to one per customer you know the secondary market is a loud portion of the industry but i don't think it's the majority i think most people are here to read books and to enjoy the story and i think that's ultimately why you haven't seen much backlash from readership about it because that's what they ultimately want they want to be able to get in on the story
3: yeah and i never <clears throat> think about what What our cut might be
4: on right. any
3: any of the secondary market, Alan. Uh, I, I'm just I love the blog post that I read the other day over a year after Canto number no. One came out, and it was in the top ten of like the hottest books right now. And it's so I love seeing that because it's free promotion for us. And also the comment was, did anybody else think this book would have already peaked by now? And I just love that sentiment. It's like the little clockwork knight who could just keep going with it.
2: Well, let's uh, let's shift away from the from the business and back to the story again, shall we? Um, so, I mean the the idea of uh, you know Canto and the you know the heart and hope are very much central to the to the whole thing and. You know, even at the the start of Canto Two and the dream that uh, that Canto has, there's a you know he sees a, a vision of the shrouded man, and behind him there's a there's a gate, and above that gate it says, Abandon heart, all you hear under here." Now the the turn of phrase that I'd be used to hearing would be Abandon hope, all you hear under here." So you you switch that out, you know, and the the idea of of uh, of heart, you're replacing a heart with a clock, and that clock ticking down, you know the. The value of the time that we have uh you know putting a putting a time limit in that does does knowing that that they have that small amount of time does uh, one know, anybody knowing that they have a, a certain amount of time does that does that improve the value of life you know is it is it a is it the what do they say about the the candle that burns the shortest burns the burns the the brightest you brightest. know that sort of thing i mean yeah let's talk about that a wee bit if we if we could
3: we have the volume. If volume one was about hope, then um, I think what you're going to see that is that um, Canto two, The Hollow Men, is about time and what we would risk uh, to ensure that we had more of it. But more importantly, what we would risk to ensure the, uh, the people that we care about would have more of it. And so I, I, I think that's the theme that you're going to see come forward as we um as we as we move on with the story and you even oh, I, I don't want to spoil the last little bit of that first issue because I think it's such a it's it's the cantos people have embraced this idea that we saw in issue number one of canto if I only had a heart which is our time is our own and I'll, I'll spoil it to the sense of when that seems to be they're free but it seems to be that That idea of your time being your own is taken away from them. Their time is no longer their own. It's been dictated by the shrouded man. And that's the thing that you're going to see play out in this storyline in these five issues. And hopefully going forward.
2: And I mean, I guess, I guess that, you know, the definition of your time belonging to someone else is in some way, the definition of slavery. And you know some of the characters. You know we we you played with that in the in the first volume. You know the idea of of the ten men, the ten people as as slaves. The idea of the slavers as slaves. The idea of uh, of uh, the, the 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 warrior, not warrior character that that Canto meets and and You know her people being slaves, and and she makes she makes some comment about that that you know slavery can take many forms. You know so that's that's interesting. You know that idea that. The time isn't their own. Yeah, good.
3: and and suddenly we're thrust into a situation where they may be free, but are they really free if they no longer have the time they thought they did?
2: Yes, I mean, I, I, are I, they? Are I, they? I, I don't know, David. I don't know. I answer that. You know, it's so it's it's so allegorical. You know, to. Uh, you know, the, the idea of the rat race and, and linking your self worth to your productivity and your, you know, people whose life means nothing more than their work. It's there's there's a whole lot going on there that just really gets me excited.
3: And the kids who read it are gonna are gonna look at it and say, uh, Oh no, their clocks are cursed. Now he's gonna to have to go on a new adventure. And that's the whole idea of that sort of puts a a pinpoint on all ages books um in an all ages story it's, it's you know parents are going to think about the rat race and they're going to think about um you know health issues and anything else and kids are going to look at it and say oh it's a big fantasy adventure now he's got to go lift a curse
4: yeah
3: and that's why I, I, and hopefully we've done our job to create those layers for everyone
2: well i think uh, i think we're we're certainly get it in our community anyway so uh so you're, you're certainly doing your job mm-hmm. I just wanted to,
0: just to finish off, uh, certainly on Canto 2, and it's um, obviously I'm looking into too many spoilers, because again, I think the, the power of this book is discovering it yourself. Uh, but I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the last few pages, and essentially had the Lord of the Rings music playing in my head, as they were all coming together as one, so to speak. But then there's this really class little panel where, again, it's a, it's a minor spoiler, but this one little panel where all their weapons are thrust together, the way that like the turtles would maybe put their four hands into the middle, you know. I, I, it's it's great to see the influences, you know, but a little twist on them. So, um, I mean, what 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 influences would you say are in this book compared to the the first book? You know, are there different influences that come into this? Obviously, Wizard of Oz is a big one, as you've stated already. Um, is there any one that we've missed thus far?
3: I mean, it's still Wizard of Oz. You'll see. Yeah. I don't know if you saw the cover for issue number two.
0: It's a bit pretty pro. on the news. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. Um, then Lord of the Rings.
4: Hebrew on Dante.
3: And Purgatory. Yeah. Dante's Purgatory of Divine Comedy. So there's a less influence of Dante in this one than it was in the first arc, but you'll still see moments of that too.
0: Cool. Well, available very very soon is Candle Two: The Hollow Man. We can't implore you guys enough to pick it up. We'll be pushing it like crazy in the store. I do have to ask, um, and I know you guys will have had no control over this and the world is upside down at the moment. Whose idea was it to launch it on the same day as Three Jokers?
4: DC's.
3: I mean, DC didn't consult us. (laughs) (laughs) DC
4: looked at us and went... uh... All right, so the big guns are coming out that day, I guess we'll put ours out.
0: <laughs> but even but even in a weird way, I think that's the perfect allegory for Kanto because it's the little knight against, you know, obviously in a way the big corporation, but uh you know our
3: I think and what's I, I would be interested to hear your take on it because I look at it as um you get a juggernaut in your shops that brings everybody out, even in a pandemic to pick up that book, and assuming the 399 Three Jokers covers, and the 400th one is Canto, and I I just, I think it's gonna bring us more eyeballs, and look, if, I I don't know, if we, I was gonna say if we take down Three Jokers, but (laughs) if we ride the wave of Three Jokers to success, there is no shame in that, I don't nope, think.
4: Not even a little bit.
0: <laughs> well, I, I would say keep an eye on our social media because I already have my display worked out for new comic book day. Uh, and I, I think you guys might get a little kick out of it, to be honest. so
3: I hope it's my face, Drew's face, and Kinto as your three
0: jokers. <laughs> well, I, 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 well I now it is.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, the ideas are flowing. <laughs> Um, but yeah, oh, I
3: would be fine with that I think it'd be funny
0: well as I say guys, Canto 2 coming soon and Canto 1 is out of stock and Coughing Heroes again but it's on its way again next week, I may have to recall those copies from Vicky's Nephews if they're not reading them they're so hard to get a hold of it's just selling so well um. But yeah, we'll we'll move about away about it a bit, and just maybe you know focus on you guys a little bit if if you're happy enough with that. But you know, what were some of the comics that you guys read growing up that sort of made you fall in love with the industry?
4: I had the unfortunate uh, growing up experience of coming into Clone Wars or Clone Saga. I, I I was kind of a casual reader growing up, and then. When I went to college, I had really rediscovered comics. I I really came back in through Sin City and then through Punisher Max. And I, I'm i sure I will get flack for it because of who wrote it, but I don't care. Um, DMZ was the other thing that really brought me back in. And then from DMZ, Why the Last Man, Locking Locking Key, and that's really what's kind of... Kept me around was were those kinds of stories,
3: and for me, I uh, so I did not read uh, comics when I was young, in the sense of the uh, superhero big two, anything like that. Um, I loved <laughs> my, my experience growing up was Mad Magazine, believe it or not. Uh, so I loved that, and I came to comics probably 15 years ago. So I've I've done a lot of catching up over the last decade uh, as far as comics what got me really, really, really excited about comics and what they could do and the stories they could tell was Lock and Key that was kind of my first big introduction to what storytelling could be in the graphic form Um, and so from there Sandman is another one that I have absolutely loved, never never read it during the 90s when it first came out Um, reading it through, through it right now and it's it's just it, it's alters your mind in multiple ways but from a storytelling perspective it shows you what comics can be um yeah and i and I've, I've circled back to try to read all of the classics um but i have to say my number one favorite comic from the last several years is a, a book called my favorite thing is monsters by Emil ferris and it is absolutely a masterwork of com- comic storytelling.
2: Wow. I don't know that one. Most, uh, most of a wee look. Familiar with it, Roddy?
1: No, I'm not familiar with it. I think we'll have to get Alan to start stocking it for all of us. It sounds class. It is.
3: Um, it won an Eisner for her. Um, the one shot, but it's called My Favorite, Our Favorite Thing is My Favorite Thing is Monsters. And it was a free comic book day book. And it won the Eisner this year for the best single issue
1: oh, cool. or best
3: one-shot. Um, it's just this amazing uh, story that will um, expand what you understand. Even you guys who are very, very, very steeped in comics will expand what it what it means to tell um, visual
1: stories. It's just extraordinary. Awesome. Um tell me this and maybe I don't know if it's too much behind the uh curtain of uh, comic book creators. So you obviously I'm the same. I I'm trying to write a novel at the moment, but I also have a day job. What's what's that it's sort of inspiration like? What's how do you find that um how do you find the balance between these two creative well, not too creative, how do you find the balance between maybe one job that's not so creative and the other that's you know, maybe your passion, or maybe both your both jobs are your passions. I don't know.
4: It, it's hard to find a balance. Uh, I have, since I was eighteen, been a firefighter and then an EMT, and I'm thirty three now, so it's been a couple of years of doing that. I, it comics is a totally different side of my brain I have to use, and it goes a long way. So. It helps that my day job is in drawing and then I have to come home and draw more. But finding a balance of the two things is, is difficult because comics are labor intensive to say the least. Uh I'm lucky I have I, I have a wife who's very understanding of of this sort of what is, you know, asked of me on all fronts. You know, it, it's tough. You you do have to drag yourself away sometimes from doing the work, but it's a matter of treating treating what would be considered a hobby by most as a profession and making sure that you sit down every day and your goal is, I have X, Y, and Z work to do. This is my job. I'm going to act professionally in line with my job and I'm going to consistently push myself to get better at it.
3: Yeah. And it's um <clears throat> it's just nights and weekends and just um, you know, treating—it's—it's it's what we do in our quote-unquote spare time, right? Write and draw comics, basically. So it's just taking all the time that you would you would spend doing other fun things and doing this fun thing that we both love.
5: Would there be um, a time that you would like to step away from your actual day job and solely work on comics? <laughs>
3: Yes. Yes.
5: (laughs) Uh,
4: For me personally, COVID really kind of wore me down. Uh, I have had a pretty, let's call it eventful career in New York City over the last five and a half years. I have participated in events that have trickled out to the entire world. And it certainly takes a toll on you after a while, mentally, physically. COVID was a little bit of a breaking point at one point. And for me personally, my my passion from when I was young was always to do art. And I think if given the opportunity, I would I would I would take it but that that is a very scary proposition to make to to you know make that leap that you don't have the safety of your job anymore, it's all on you.
3: And for me, it's about um, time and gaining more time to do what I what I really am passionate about.
4: The the other thing is that having having a side job, as as brutal and as much of a grind as it can be to have to have some place that you have to spend forty plus hours a week at that isn't drawing, it also allows us to go and tell whatever story we want to tell. the The best part about Canto is we are beholden to absolutely no one when it comes to that story. IDW does not on any conceivable level interfere with what we, the story we tell. They, they literally leave it to us. That level of freedom creatively is a real gift to have. And it's because we have day jobs that we know that, you know, if we try something and it fails out in the market, it's not the end of the world. It it was a good experience and we probably both progressed our skill set, but financially, we're both still okay as a result of it.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess it keeps uh, keeps you chasing something, right? What I was going to say, Canto, Canto was kind of picking up steam and obviously with coronavirus, um, it's m- maybe not stalled your momentum, but it meant that maybe your approach to the to the promotion of it kind of changed so what so i mean it's it's the summer right now like i'm sure you would be if it wasn't for coronavirus you would be at conventions you would be spreading the word like lots of word lots of word of mouth around conventions and signings and all that so like how did it um how did it change and when it's all said and done what's the first thing you're going to do at a convention when it's all back to normal (laughs) wear a mask no (laughs) Um,
3: it's it was interesting because i think we were in a very very um fortunate situation um in two ways one we had Canto come out last year which means that we had built a brand that seemed to well we had started to build a brand that that seemed to be successful so it wasn't just when the shops reopened for pickup um it was not us just introducing ourselves for the very first time and asking shops, hey, we know you're financially very precarious, so please take a chance on something that is unproven. We know that the shops have really sold Canto well. So to have to approach them again and say, hey, we have new material, we have new stories, we have new issues. I think, to be honest, shops. Have well, I mean, I don't want to shop splain you because you're in it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, our experience has been I could tell you what we experienced on our side, um, and then you can go, Well, actually, um, shops have been really um, enthusiastic to embrace the new um, content with DC pulling out and the challenges with that situation. Um, To have something be offered, that falls in the bucket of like lock and key at IDW or Usagi or Jimbo at IDW. Most shop owners seem to think that if they order this, they can sell it because people are familiar with it and the word of mouth will be good. So, yes, we haven't been able to go to the conventions. We haven't been able to go to shops really and do a lot of signings. But COVID has really opened the market for a book like ours. That's an indie book, but has some legs and has some foundation. And I think um, to be honest, we've been seeing the preliminary numbers for Canto 2, and it's absolutely just exceeds every um, expectation that we have set for this book coming out. It's just been so much more successful than last than, than the first um, story arc and the first number one and beyond even what we had thought we would do as a success. So I think what we're seeing is COVID opening um, the marketplace for us. And if the sacrifice is not going to some conventions this year and not doing in-person signings, then I think it's a deal with the devil, but it's a deal that we have to deal with.
4: COVID also kind of, it, it forced what would be about 10 years of evolution for the industry into a three month period, which is why I think everyone's kind of in a bit of a freak out about it. I mean, at least from our end, we, we've done remote signings. Uh, we, we've actively sought out. We, we had this great realization that, yes, the cons aren't happening, but we also now have this opportunity to have direct relationship with stores where we can set stuff up with them in areas that we personally don't have the resources to go to. And maybe a lot of the patrons of that store don't necessarily have the resources to go to a San Diego, to go to a New York city comic con, but we still get to interact with them and give them that opportunity to interact with us. And it just, it, you realize it changes, it, it's you know making lemonade out of lemons it, you're it's just finding new ways to interact with people that COVID is has forced
0: well actually <laughs> i do a bit joke Shops, um, please
4: shops play me shops
3: play
0: me <laughs> <laughs> not at all not at all no but uh the one thing i would say and it's and it's a reason that your book is is certainly successful with us obviously it's it's down to the product itself which is fantastic but we do focus a lot on indie stuff you know we when it comes to our graphic novel selection for example we have four large displays one is dc one is marvel two of them are indie so we have we really do focus on the indie side of things because we find with comic readers now if they're new to the industry they don't always want to jump into 70 years of history they maybe just i would always say what's your favorite movie we can find you a comic along that genre, that kind of thing, you know. So
4: that's what I've been saying for years, I can find anybody a comic that they will enjoy, but it most likely won't come from the big two.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean that that's it. I I we say it all the time. There's a comic for everyone. You know, if you like noir, you like zombie movies, you like you know end of the world stuff, you like sci-fi, you like fantasy. There's something for everyone. So and you know again i go back to canto as well one of the reasons it stands out with the world being the way it is at the moment is it's a story that represents hope and puts a smile on people's faces and it's a character they can identify with so for that we say thank you and you know can't wait to you know have more adventures with the little tin man so um we're going to if we're probably going to wrap it up now for you guys because otherwise we're going to you know chat all night and i'm sure drew has a 16-hour shift tomorrow of some kind i
4: oh, know I'm, I'm on my
3: weekend it's great Finally. oh no 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 you have a 16-hour shift tomorrow you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> you haven't seen the latest pages
4: <laughs> <laughs> you know one Page? of one, yeah, there's,
5: there's my 16 hours um
0: but no there's there's just one last thing vicky wants to bring a little bit of attention to so i'll let her uh take the mic
5: so david obviously i've been seeing on twitter and instagram a lot about um Collector's Paradise, the signature series. Um, I actually took a punt and I actually ordered it um, because, obviously, <gasps> do I'm,
3: not tell Alan. That oh, you. I
5: I told him after I bought it. I was like, I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't I don't tend to buy myself or us a lot. Uh, um, but obviously we've got the art by Drew, and I wanted something with your not necessarily your signature, but obviously to something by you. Um, And that's why, obviously, until we can actually have you guys in store and do a signing with us, this was the next best thing.
3: Well, thank you so much. And um, let's talk afterward. (laughs) I have some ideas.
4: (laughs) We like that. You guys are top of the list, at least for me, to get out to when the world starts letting us go places again. Uh I've I've been to the southern half of the country and it was one of the best trips I ever took. Uh my wife is very eager to go back and yeah. to see the north half and to go see family up there. So we'll
1: we'll show you the northern half and we'll have some pars.
4: Yep. Beautiful.
0: <laughs> cool. Well we'll we'll wrap it up there, guys. Um because you've been exceptionally generous with your time and oh. I, I could tell just from watching that uh, that Comic-Con the other night, you know, you guys would be easy to talk to. I knew a couple of hours would just pass by, so um, we but we'll, we'll put a pin in it there. So, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on and chatting to us, giving us a little bit of an insight into the creative process. Uh, one thing we didn't touch on, but I would recommend going and checking out that Comic-Con video, is they may have revealed the title for Canto 3 on there.
3: Who did that?
0: I don't know. I don't know who did that, but... It's
3: terrible. They should be fired. <laughs> Taken off this book immediately. Well, Spoiler alert, it was me.
1: Well, you don't you know if you want to tell us Canto 4. <laughs>
3: don't do Radio silence. I'm going to hold that one close. We'll, we'll let you off, off the, the hook. Past. We are currently... Um, well, I'll just say this. If everybody goes out and buys a copy of Canto 2 Number 1 all the way through 5, buys the trade... Just really keeps the support up. We're gonna be able to tell not only Canto three, um, but hopefully Canto four, five, six, seven, until we both um can't I, do it anymore. I, I will
4: I will simplify it. If you guys buy, you know, keep the numbers good, you make the pitch that we just made much easier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and hopefully a canto action figure at some point.
4: Uh we we have hope for that down the road. It's canto there's always hope for everything
0: and that is the perfect ending thank you once again guys it's been an absolute pleasure and uh we'll look forward to being top of your list for a little trip over this side of the world hopefully sooner rather than later so thanks again guys
3: Thank 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 you thank you thank you